Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Social Work Radio with me, your host, Vince Piat. On today's show, I am joined by Charlotte Kirin. Charlotte is a climate activist, and she has recently hit the mainstream media for her involvement with Just Stop Oil protests. As well as being a climate activist, Charlotte is a social worker, and she joins us on Social Work Radio today. Charlotte, my friend, thank you ever so much for joining us on the podcast. Would you like to introduce yourself to the social work world and tell them a little bit about yourself? Hello. Yes, uh, um, I'm. Uh, I've been a social worker for twenty years. I'm um, a carer for my mother, and I am involved with uh, climate activism and have been since twenty eighteen. So, Charlotte, the first thing I'm going to ask you: You've been a social worker twenty years. Wow. Mm. Um, that that's a that that is that is a a, a long go, and we we quite often try yeah. the statistic on this show that um, the average social worker only lasts in the in the career about six or seven years. So yeah. before we get before we get into talking about your activism, Charlotte, I think you've got to I think you've got to teach us the secret. <laughs> um, let, let's let's talk about that first. Um, yeah, is um, what's the secret for lasting so long? I think I was very fortunate i um i had some really good opportunities um and uh was able to work in some different ways that i love doing and that i guess just um while it was still frontline work it was creative with a bit of space for doing things differently and mm. really enjoying um seeing a difference uh and also i think the other thing i've always done is and have felt very privileged to do is just to wherever there's been a chance to do something new or to learn something new i've taken it so that's included uh doing an ma in advanced social work um uh, doing a practice education um, and 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 undertaking that role for for quite a few years Nice. And things like uh, doing the best interest assessor qualification. So just taking opportunities and and keeping involved in whatever is available, really. A couple of things you've said there that kind of chime with me. I mean, the, the first one you've said there is in terms of looking for those opportunities and also developing yourself because as part of Social Work News magazine, I do a, a weekly supervision column and at least 90% of the letters that we get in for advice from people on the verge of burning out. And I would say, Charlotte, almost all of those, in fact, off the top of my head, I think all of them, I can't remember one of those people who, who wasn't, who wasn't feeling like they were just stuck in one form of social work. Uh -huh. And I think that can be quite easy. Can't it? Sometimes people can feel that statutory social work counsels social work in a very niche area. Sometimes mm -hmm. people can feel that's the only social work there is and get stuck in a rut, can't they? Yes, and I think um, at the point that you feel stuck, it's very difficult to look around, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You 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 know you feel like um, you're just sort of struggling to get to get through days, and that can yeah. be the hardest time to actually identify other things or to take on something new because it can feel really hard to just add to the pressure or or yes. to even even identify what those opportunities might be. 
Um, so that is a challenge, and I do think um, I do think it's something that that employers maybe would really benefit from recognising uh, how important that is for maintaining the health and and consistency of a workforce. Yeah, definitely. So, have you found that you've had employers that have done that, or have you found that that responsibility has been something you've carried yourself? I think there's a combination there. I do think I've, I've been really fortunate and I appreciate greatly that um, throughout my career, there were people that would point out something coming up or suggest maybe that yeah. I'd go for a role that I wouldn't have uh, considered going going for. Um, and so, you know, I, I absolutely recognise that, that there was, there was a, that I was being supported uh, within that. Mm-hmm. Um, I do feel like it was mostly individuals, maybe, rather than the organisation. But having said that, I've been so lucky to have been, you know, the, the, the qualifications I've spoken about, some of them were funded by the council. Yeah. And I, I think that's something that probably is more difficult to to get agreed now. Um, but I love doing my my MA, for example, um, and and the fact that that was supported financially and in terms of time by the council feels now like an incredible luxury. Um, but equally, on on the flip side, they, though, though, Charlotte, look what they got from that. By in that investment yeah. in you, that surely would have paid itself back many times yeah. over from not only your commitment to the council, not only your loyalty, but also on the skills you were able to pass on with the people you were supporting as well as the team. Yes, I think so. And I think I've seen that in in people um, who maybe I've managed or, or in teams where I've been able to say, let's do something different and yeah. or let's um, let's try this and and really seeing the extent to which that improves morale and engagement yeah. and the sort of level of work or the quality of the work that we're able to do in those situations. Yeah. And that is very different from a culture that you often find, which is bums on seat and high turnover, isn't it? Which is kind of the antithesis of what we've just yeah. been speaking about there, really. Yes. And I've felt that as well. And uh, <laughs> you've seen both sides then, have you? Yeah. You've seen both sides of the spectrum. Yes, absolutely. That feeling that um that we're processing people, I guess, is what it comes down to, is that 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 the space for really seeing the person, really mm. thinking alongside them how we can work through whatever is happening. When that goes, uh, yeah, things get very difficult. I like that turn of phrase there, Charlotte. I think I'm going to pinch that off you. Do not be surprised if you see a column from me <laughs> in about three weeks' time <laughs> with the headline processing people um, yeah. because that, uh, that I think that is a very, a very good way of describing what modern social work is for many, isn't it? Yeah, and I, and I understand that. I always I always have this picture of um, the senior managers who have this enormous responsibility, um, mm. sitting behind quite thick walls. I always think, you know, and and, and <laughs> yeah. I picture the the shire hall I knew, which was this old building with with thick walls and heavy doors, and I understand the need for that overview of a population. Yes. But things get lost, and and I think not recognizing that social work should be the other end of that, you know, mm. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it it can get to a point where 
effectiveness just gets lost in the in the need for managing money, managing information. Um, yeah. Yeah, you're totally right. It, it it becomes it becomes on spreadsheets, you know, social work by spreadsheet when it gets to that level. And I think yeah. when you do think about, like, I like that description as well. But the, the the men and women behind thick walls. I think that yes. you might might creep into another column. <laughs> um, I like I like the way of putting it. The men and women behind thick walls. I always mm-hmm. find that they they see the extremes of social work. They will yes. see the success stories, you know, the, yes. the really good bits of praise that gets passed on or, um, you know, in, in my line of work and child protection, um, people at a high level, it's great, yeah. but they will quite often spend time with um, children who've been in care, gone through the care system, gone into university, success stories of the care system and in inverted commas. On the flip side, they kind of tend to see the more extreme negative side of things who serious case reviews, um, yeah. coroner's court and things like that. I think the, the nuances of the day-to-day social work, the everyday, which make up 99% of the people we support, those can kind of be lost at that level, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And there are so many... I think uh, having worked in ways where we've been able to not only look at the the situations where people need an intervention because of mm. something that is happening in their lives, but also we've been able to look at the resource that is available yes. in communities. I think that the just the wealth of support and um, initiative and kindness that is lost by us not recognizing uh, the resources that people have and the the learning they have um, and what they are willing to share. Yeah, we lose so much and and that's that's no good for anyone, really. No, definitely. And I, 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 w- I have seen a bit of a, a shift towards councils recognising that. Again, coming from my perspective in children, there's a greater focus on family group conferences at an early stage now, you know, Get, yeah. getting in there and meeting grandmothers and you know, grandfathers yeah. and aunties yeah. and cousins, brothers, sisters, pulling the community together and saying, right, let's stave off an 18-month child protection plan, which never really does much and doesn't really go anywhere, yeah. but ties up all these resources and puts awful pressure upon the families who have the, you know, the fear of the social worker hanging over them. Yeah. Let's see what ideas you guys can come up with it and draw on those resources. And we all know, Charlotte, that... Uh, it's going to be a lot more sustainable if people come up with their own plans than it is if somebody yeah. comes up with a plan for them. Yes, absolutely. And um, yeah, just just that that's just so basic, isn't it? That that yeah. you know, let's let's start with where the person is, uh, yeah. look at the situation from there, and and work out a way that that makes sense to them. And that's what we're. I think we're constrained from doing sometimes, you know, and particularly when resources uh, are shrinking. Well, Charlotte, as, as glib as it might sound, um, I've barely got my own life in order, so I'm not too sure yeah. I'm the best person yeah. to be telling other people how to get their lives yeah. in order. Uh-huh. So what I like is for people to tell me what they want, and then we can see yeah. if we can make that possible. And that, for me, is effective social work. But are yeah. we always allowed to do that? That's the worry, isn't it? It is. The most effective social work I've done, I think, in, in those 20 years is I worked um, on a project called Neighbourhood Cares, um, and it ran to a Bertzog model. Right. And we, we uh, had two years of a pilot scheme in a 
in a town. So Birdsorg is a is a self-managed team model um, that comes from the Netherlands. Yes, and, um, I think Frontline are looking to embed this. Yes, I'm sure that's I've, right. yeah, I'm sure I've read yes. that Frontline and the What Works Centre have been looking to yes. bring this in again, haven't they? I've spoken to Frontline about it, yes, uh, when, when I was um, part of that pilot. Nice. And tell, what we, tell us about it then, Charlotte. How did it go? Well, it, it was a group of us uh, who had a room in the library in a small town uh, mm. working with a population of about 10,000 people. And we were um, we were there for the whole town. Basically, we we yeah. um, our only criteria was that you lived in this particular location, and we had we had the budget that the older people's team had allocated to people mm-hmm. living in that area. So that was our complete budget. And what we did was just let people know we were there. We obviously did statutory work in in terms of our responsibility to people who were already receiving packages of care Um, but we just uh, made it known we were there we ensured that we always had a kettle and a toaster Uh, we provided space whenever we could the library wasn't open every day so on days when the library wasn't being a library we'd open it up for various groups Um, Mm. we'd get them going but on the whole they were self-run some you know people would just use that space and time and we'd be in the background and we did a huge amount of work and and a lot of that was people coming to us and sometimes it was people who had had experiences of services in the past and quite negative experiences but who would come through the doors of a library because why wouldn't you and (laughs) who were able to sit in a room with a cup of tea and say actually this isn't quite right at the moment or I can offer this, you know, I can, I, I really love gardening. Me and my son would like to do, do some gardening, but we don't know where to start. Or, um, you know, we thought about setting up a group in, in, in the church hall and we'd like a bit of help with getting that going. And it was just a mate. So, so the room we were in became full of things that people would, would give us that, that they no longer had need for. Um, so we had, you know, if somebody needed, um, a walker or something that might take a little while to come through for mm. occupational health, we could lend them it. Um, we had an enormous stock of incontinence pads at one stage that we could just say, if someone was waiting for an assessment, we could just say, look, take these for now. And, uh, and that was just things that people would give us that they thought might be useful. Um, and it was a real feeling that the community had a, a focus for sharing resources and that was personal resources. It was, it was um, somewhere to just make a cup of tea for someone or to have a chat with someone, mm-hmm. but with that social care underpinning, that sort of social work um, knowledge and responsibility and, and the access to that and the world that that can open up when it's needed. How were the results then? How, what 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 did you find came of that? Did it did did it did it mesh with the welfare state? Because on the one hand, what you're describing there sounds amazing, sounds absolutely yeah. amazing. But the cynical part of me, and uh-huh. I am a cynic, I've got to be honest. The cynical part of me thinks, well, why does it take social workers to do that? How how are you able to sort of mesh the, Ooh, the theory and the frameworks and the legislation of social work with yeah. that community model? Where where was the sort of synergy between the two? 
I came, I came to exactly that conclusion. No. As, a, <laughs> as a team, I'm glad it's not just that. me. Then I'm glad no. it's not just me. As a team, we came to that conclusion. What what we felt so there was there were six roughly six of us. We weren't all social workers. We had yeah. um, we had an, an uh, someone who'd been who was qualified as a nurse. We had a community. Um, I, I can't think of her title, but she'd she'd done uh, she'd work, always worked in sort of community settings. Yeah. Um, and I think what happened was that um, we very much wanted this to continue. We could absolutely see the benefit to the town, and we could also see how it could happen in other places. Yeah. But that it couldn't be. It couldn't be replicated it couldn't be rolled out it would need to grow in those other you know we'd, we'd need to seed it in other t- uh, towns and, and communities and what we felt was that having had the opportunity to do that work and set mm-hmm. it up we would have loved to have gone and set up teams across the county yeah. uh, with maybe a social worker in each team and that social worker is there the the, the importance of that i think was things like you know we we held responsibility for safeguarding. Um, we did do the statutory work. We did, apart from anything else, have the responsibility of of a team, a self-managed team. So, so it's that sort of awareness and thinking around the team uh, setting itself very high standards and sticking to it because we we so wanted it to work um, and we were so invested in it. So, so there, there was a social work role, but it didn't need a group of social workers in, in each of the settings. And we, we totally, you know, that was, that was one of the things that we uh, strongly felt by the end of it. Uh, so I, I'm, you know, I was worried about, I was worried about raising that with Michelle. I'm not going to lie. I was, I was worried about sharing what a cynical mind I've got to think that. So thank God, thank God that, you know, you came to that. I don't feel so bad for pointing out now. So, I mean, look, on the flip side, it sounds amazing. How great would it be if, if every community had that? Because yeah. what that what that appears to be doing from from the way you've described it is replicating what we once would have had. Because you know, yeah. the, the great the great issue we've got at the moment is is the loss of communities with yeah. identical new build housing estates that don't have any yeah. sort of central hubs with. You know the, um, the 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 death of many religions, in particular, yeah. you know the um, the Christian faith. You know, lots of yeah. churches closing down. You know, lots of people that are not even leaving the home to go to work anymore. Local pubs closing down. Local shopping centres yeah. closing down. We've just heard recently that you know there's going to be a lot of more banks closing, yeah. post offices. You know, we could go on and on and on, but essentially, yeah. you know. Those things that tied communities together in small village-like ways of living yeah. for almost the entirety of human existence is over the past yeah. even 40 years. I mean, we could probably go back to the, the 80s, I suppose, when most of those yeah. things were still there. People were still mostly working and living locally, certainly in my lifetime. You know, I turned 40 next year in my lifetime. Yeah. Those things have gone. So you need something to replicate that could the Birdsorg model potentially be applied, but in a way where social workers kind of get it up and go and then move on? Um, yes, I think so. But Birdsorg is a, um, it's a health model primarily. Mm. So, so um, in the Netherlands, it's an extremely successful health model based on the system and uh, a very different setup to the NHS, basically. So right. I think 
another of the things that we came up against and another of the things that that I think um, just made it feel that it couldn't continue, made the organisation feel that it couldn't continue, was that we were doing a lot of health work. Yeah. Uh, we supported a lot of people to die at home. Um, and that was just really simple things, the simplest things. It was... I guess because we were self-managed, because we were a pilot, we were given a fair bit of freedom and mm. we did, um, we could do things that maybe we wouldn't have been able to do as, as social workers. So we could go in and make space in someone's house for a hospital bed. And, yes. and just making space for a hospital bed is a huge barrier to people dying at home. You know, the fact that there's no one to move the furniture around and to ensure that there's a bed that the district nurses can access and, and be able to come into. Um, and just, you know, as an example of something so simple that makes the biggest difference wow. to somebody. Yeah, it was uh, very powerful, small steps, but they weren't looking at people in terms of your health, your social care, yes. your older people's team, your, your learning disability team. We were just saying, yes, we're here. We can work with you. How do we start? In, in hearing that, it makes me terribly sad to think how many people you were able to help do that, yet how many people out there every single day are not able to do that because of those small things that you were able to support with. If you were doing that in a community of 10,000 people and you were seeing it that regularly, well, we've got 60-plus million people in the United Kingdom. Yeah. How many people aren't getting those basic dying wishes granted and having to die in in unfamiliar circumstances for the want of a little bit of help. Yeah, it was one of those things that's an enormous privilege to be part of. Um, yeah. Powerful stuff, Charlotte. Um, let's take it back a step then. Why social work? How did you get into social work? What, what was the reason for you wanting to become a social worker? I'd left home very young um, without, without any particular... Um, qualifications and had done all sorts of things for a few years um, and then was back in my hometown and I had a baby, I had a small child and really wanted to just go back to education and what I went back to was a health and social care access course, that's what was available to me. I hadn't, I, I didn't know at that point what I wanted to do with it, I just mm -hmm. wanted to um, get back into learning really. And while I was on that, I heard about a joint award um, that was being run fairly locally, which was a combined social work and nursing qualification for adults with learning disabilities. So with the, with, um, the nursing qualification was specifically for people with learning disabilities. And that really appealed to me. Um, I did that, which still not knowing whether it was nursing or social work or neither. <laughs> that um, <laughs> I, I like was really it. interested in. I like it. Um, but then found that social work felt like where difference might be made, I mm. think. Um, I, I loved the nursing placements I did. I still really appreciate that sort of immersion in nursing environments. And I've managed um, multidisciplinary teams, and it's been invaluable in those settings, just having that that perspective, but it was social work where it felt like there was, the, I don't know, it, I guess it, it probably felt uh, that there's more of a tangle, more, more knots mm. uh, in a way. 
and and that's where I wanted to be. But it's good that you had the opportunity to try both as well. And yeah. what you've said there about your experience in nursing, it's something I've found myself. I, I used to work in a school. Um, yeah. So when I'm now in a position with teachers, simply having a little bit of understanding of that, I think it can build camaraderie and it can really yes. help collaborative work. And so you yes. having that grounding from nursing, given particularly in adults, how... Yeah you always, more or less all adult social work involves some side-by-side working with health at some degree, particularly if you look at the NHS as a a wider unit, um, it can really help having that that almost – shared professional knowledge and terminology and identity yes. it can be it can be useful for the people we support can't it absolutely yeah i'm very glad i had the opportunity to do that yeah it worked well so charlotte we've we've learned about how you got into social work um we've learned about some of the amazing things you've done over 20 years i'm thinking about coming to work for you if truth be told i, I like your experience i think i could learn a lot from you my friend um <laughs> Let's talk about your journey into activism. Obviously, you know, the main reason we've got you on the podcast is to talk about the work that you've been doing recently with Just Stop Oil and other movements people will be familiar with. Clearly, you know, we're going to discuss that and, you know, the wider issues that we're currently facing in terms of the climate and climate change. When did that become something you're actively involved with? Was it childhood? Was it older? When did you sort of start to take an active interest in in the need to do something in order to protect planet earth i think it was always about this sounds incredibly grand i'm sure i wasn't thinking in these terms but i i i guess it's best defined as a as a awareness of social justice or social mm. injustice uh so at school i was involved with what was then youth cnd so this was the 1980s I clearly remember the miners' strike and mm. the the atmosphere around that, and the you know, the real feeling that that something was being destroyed, um, that communities were being threatened. Mm. Um, I took part in some demonstrations around uh, hunting. This was pre the hunting ban, mm-hmm. um, so so it felt like uh, being drawn to. <laughs> situations where there was a, a situation that yet yeah, that felt unjust or mm-hmm. that uh, an issue was being maybe not highlighted in the way it needed to be or that uh, people were being misled maybe but yeah just wanting to respond to the to the emotions i felt in the face of these situations L- lending yourself to causes then i suppose yeah so how did that progress to the point where obviously you've, you've taken more extreme action, if I can put it that way, that's sort of seen you um, become, you know, a, a, a key news story in the national press over the past couple of weeks, Charlotte. When did that progress, you know, from being aware of the miners' strike, which, you know, being from the northeast, I'm clearly, you know, yeah. my, my father was a coal merchant, my grandfather yeah. worked on the mines, so that, that was something that... Clearly, you know, from my part of the world, I was I grew up in the the shadow of that, and you know, yeah. certainly what what Thatcher did to the communities, which I've got to be blunt with you, Charlotte. There's some of those communities which still haven't recovered. You yeah. know, the miners' strike to a lot of people, not yourself, you're aware of it, but to a lot of people, is history 
Um, I wish I could take some of these people to Northumbrian and uh, Durham mining villages, which have some of the highest rates of drug use and the highest rates of domestic abuse and crime in the whole country because they were built around mines and then one day the mines were there, the next day they were gone and nothing was put in place to replace them. These entire communities, some of those communities that I've worked in, um, you're looking at third and fourth generation now of worklessness. Um, Grandparents never worked their entire life. Mother and father never worked their entire life. And now you've got children that are grown up and they have no ambitions and no plans to work because there's nothing there for them and they've seen nothing else but... Um, I've gone off on one a little bit there, Charlotte. My apologies. No, you've you've no. touched something that I'm very passionate about yeah. coming from that background. So yeah. when when did that progress? Obviously, you know, ban the bombs, CND, um, involved in hunt activism before the hunting ban, and um, on the fringes of being aware of the of the miners' strike. When did that change to more? Um, Extreme activism, if if that's a term you feel comfortable with me using. I I don't see what I do as extreme in the context of what we're facing, but yes. I'm. But yes, I also take the point. Uh, so um, I became aware of um, Extinction Rebellion in late 2018 and heard a talk which really just said that the climate crisis that had been something that had been a background background to my whole life, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, I can certainly remember Blue Peter telling me about climate change when I was <laughs> yeah, a child. Yeah. Um, and just, yeah, just saying that, that this thing, this vague threat that had been hovering around in the background uh, was actually exhilarating. Mm-hmm. Um, and that also it was something that wasn't going to be solved with people being really good at recycling and... <laughs> changing their lifestyles it was the responsibility of government and media and industry to make the changes they knew were necessary to prevent disaster and that felt um very pertinent to me it felt Mm. like something that maybe i'd been trying to square you know like trying to, to make sense of and i think there's a real relief in people speaking out about and taking action on an ever-present but sort of unfaced threat, mm. maybe. You know, this this idea that things are changing and that feeling, I guess, that someone must be doing something about this. Yeah, yeah. And then an acknowledgement that actually, no, they're not, but if there's enough of us, maybe we can make them do something about this. I like the way you put that, that that idea that, you know, firstly, that we were all told, well, as long as you sort your recycling, as long as you go on the internet and check your own personal carbon footprint and perhaps shop local, that there was this idea that it was on the individual and and generally, you know, the lower class individuals and the middle class individuals, yet it's fine for people to jet around on private jet just for the sake of going to a new movie launch. Mm your action that you've been taking. I'm not going to use the word extreme action. I, I get where you're coming from. And, and, and it's a very, very fair point you make because how on earth is that extreme in the context of mm. human beings no longer being able to live on our planet? It's a mm. extremely well put and well made point. 
obviously you've recently been involved in action, which is to somebody like me, Charlotte, to somebody like me, it, it, I, I would be worried. I have to be blunt if this makes me sound lily-livered or, or a coward. I have got to be honest that what, what you've been doing, it, it would make me bulk. I, I would like to think that I could motivate myself eventually, but the prospect of what you've been doing it does seem incredibly nerve-wracking and scary looking at from afar. How do you feel in the run-up to a protest? You know, are you nervous? Do you get scared? Do you have fears for your safety? Or is that drive and desire to do something, does that help you fire you through all those negative feelings? Just, just how do you get yourself up to do that, I suppose? This feels like a really strange way to put it. I've, I've, I was going to say that I've had the luxury of four years to get mm. to this point. And, and I say that because we're now looking at a situation where Sir David King, uh, you know, a very well-respected and previously government-employed scientist, is saying we've probably only got four years to make the changes we need to make less now. But in those four years from, since that first Extinction Rebellion meeting, I think I've moved into a space where I can't pretend not to know what is being done. Mm -hmm. And... And while we're feeling it here, we're beginning to feel it and it's going to become immeasurably worse. It's happening around the world and I can't not respond to a third of Pakistan being underwater or year after year of famine mm. in Somalia, knowing that that is a consequence of an action that could be stopped and that our government could be taking steps to stop. And I, I think it's that. It's, but it, it, the situation is such that no action feels, feels unreasonable. If it mm -hmm. seems to me that um, what I do is very little and it sometimes feels ridiculous that a person like me, you know, who a 50-year-old woman, a 53-year-old woman who's been a social worker for 20 years, is doing these things. But of course, I will do what I can mm -hmm. to draw attention to the fact that we're hurtling towards disaster and many, many millions of people are already living with the consequences of this inaction. So it's the context then. If, if, I, if I set it in the context of me leaving an office or my home and going out and doing that now, that seems extreme. But if you set it in the context of a third of Pakistan being underwater, Somalia facing yeah. drought after drought after drought, millions and potentially billions of people being displaced in you know mm. the, the, the course of the near future. When you put it in that context, scaling a gantry on the M25 seems a small sacrifice in the context of what is to come. Have I got that right, Charlotte? Yeah. I mean, you also asked about safety and... Um, yeah. Within that, you know, there is a real awareness of, of our own safety and the safety of, of people mm -hmm. who might be affected. Um, so I think this is one of the one of the areas where I see a sort of crossover with social work is that um, that sort of commitment to community and the the ideal of people taking responsibility for each other's well being and um, working as a as a group of people um doing something together 
And within that, it does feel safe. What are your thoughts on how the mainstream press have reported on this issue? The mainstream press are, are one of the pillars who uphold the systems that are causing the destruction. And yeah. and obviously, yeah, and, and they're doing that because it, it benefits them to do so. It, it maintains power and profit. And um, so I think, you know, we know or I know that um, I will be portrayed in a certain way and that that will be a way that, serves the media in in some in some form um i think that what i see is the media trying to distract attention from the issues and they do that they do that by uh, ridiculing or or demonizing people who try to take action but they also do it by ridiculing demonizing people who are who are desperate who are who are fleeing uh, areas of the world that are becoming unlivable or who are um, really feeling the consequences of resources being resources that are shrinking now and that will continue to shrink and will become more and more scarce. A large part of the mainstream media wants us to turn against our neighbours. Uh, you know, are they a benefit cheat? Are they a, a refugee? Are they, um, you know, are they an activist? Let's, let's turn our, our, energy towards hating them rather than to trying to work together to face the hardship that is going to come not only because of government policy and government decisions on finance, but because resources are going to become scarcer as our climate changes. What's interested me about the mainstream press is it's almost as if they tried to trivialise the issue. I'm not sure if that's how you would see it, if it makes sense. But when I've seen it reported in the mainstream press, the focus hasn't been on what people like yourself are fighting for. The focus has been on the minor inconvenience this has caused. Yeah. And, you know, there was massive media attention given to a woman in a big four-by-four four in Essex who dragged yeah. somebody out oh no she pushed a protest yeah. with the car and the, the the press interviewed her they followed her through the court process the, there was repeatedly shown videos she got about a week's attention thanks to that yeah. and it seems if there's this agenda shell i'm not sure if you guys see it as i do but it seems to be this is agenda to trivialize what you're doing and pay no focus whatsoever to the reason why you move to do this, but simply focus on the minor inconveniences if it's been a, a, a traffic accident or a road collision that's caused these mm. issues. Does that make sense? Do you see, do you see yeah. where it's coming from? I do, and I, I think that's quite conscious on their part. I think mm. it's it's comes from the same root as suggesting that any one of us is individually threatened by a boat full of people reaching the south coast. Um, you know, it's it's that same driver yeah. to detract attention, I think. Um, don't look at the crisis. Don't look at uh, the fact that we have an industry and government supported by the media who are trying to um, protect, as I see it, profits and power over yeah. the welfare of their population, you know, Look over here at this shiny thing. Yes, don't yeah. look at the, don't look at the crop failures. Don't look at the the fires burning. 
keep buying, <laughs> keep yes, flying. Yes, <laughs> you know, it's just that. Yeah. yeah, that that feel that um, yes, the media uh, do what they do quite consciously and with a view to keeping their position. Taylor's all this time, isn't it? Pitting, pitting the uh, pitting the proletariat ass off against yeah. each other, yeah. so the bourgeois can do yep. as they will. Um, talking about the bourgeois, let's talk about the conservative government. Now we we will roll the clock back about six months to when we had Boris in power. I know it's difficult these days to keep up yeah. with who's in power. So much so that uh, social workers have no longer been advised to ask dementia patients who the latest yeah. prime minister might be, because who knows? So it seems a yeah. very unfair test of memory. Yeah. Now, Boris and, and, you know, perhaps even before him, Maine Cameron, um, did a big thing about green conservatism, you know, we're going to push for green levies. We're going to bring in low emission zones. We are going to bring in Boris bikes and, you know, support um, more economical ways and ecological ways of living. The government, when challenged on these issues, Charlotte, I'm sure you see this a lot more than I do, but the government, when challenged on these issues, point to various different things that they are doing. What do you think of the government's response to climate change? What are they doing right? And more importantly, what are they doing wrong? Are they doing anything right, I should ask? I think anything they're doing that may uh, be, be useful or supportive is entirely outweighed by the fact that they're still issuing oil and gas licenses mm -hmm. that... Um, take us beyond the next eight years. So Just Stop Oil's uh, primary demand is, is to stop new oil and gas licenses. We have oil and gas licenses in place for the next eight years. That would give us time or give the government time to plan a, a fair transition that would create millions of jobs, uh, yeah. would, would um, improve housing, would look at different energy sources that would be accessible to all um, and would keep uh, the heating of the planet or, or, or our, response, our, our part in the heating of the planet at least somewhere near what is believed to be survivable. Until while we're still using oil and gas as the, the driver for business as usual, mm -hmm. Everything else is a token, really. If people like me and our listeners who, I'll be honest with you, Charlotte, I'm not actively involved in, in, in anything like this, you know, I'll write about it. I'm happy to speak to people like yourself. You know, I, I am interested. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I believe that this is an issue, but I struggle to know where to start. How can people like me and our listeners who may fall into that concerned but, you know, lacking action sort of category, what can people like me and others in my position do to help make a difference? How can we support people like yourself, Charlotte? How can we do more? I think uh, there's, there's good information on both Just Stop Oil and Extinction Rebellions. Um, mm -hmm websites and and they're pretty good at referencing as well they don't they don't ask you to 
take their word for it. You know, they point you at, at literature that um, that really supports the science behind this movement. Yeah. Um, and also, they do show you how you can take action, and that might be that might be getting involved um, directly, or it might be through supporting some of the organisations that allow people to keep taking action. Mm. Um, so one of those is the Climate Action Support Pathway, which provides legal and emotional and uh, supports people in prison for activism around the climate. So, so really holds people that are involved in the fight. I think just being aware of it in workspaces and not not pretending it's not the responsibility. So, so that's a double negative. But work, being, you know, a lot of social workers work for big organisations with a yeah. lot, of, lot of power. These changes in our temperature, these, these changes in our resources, our natural resources, our access to food, water, are going to have devastating impacts on the people we work with. Mm. Making noise about that or holding employers to account for what they're doing they know that this is coming you know this yeah. is none of this is secret yeah just just asking those questions what are we as an organization doing about this because it's it's going to be happening yeah definitely um guys just in relation to the climate action support pathway that charlotte mentioned there um we've donated um a fee towards that and uh, we've donated that from social work news should i say and we um, are also putting that link so if you guys want to check in the link in the description for this podcast wherever you've downloaded it today you'll be able to find that link and you can also donate to that um i just wanted to put that in there Charlotte, in case our listeners <laughs> like me would be interested in also finding that so guys again if you check in the link you'll be able to find that um charlotte Thank you ever so much. Thank you, firstly and most importantly, for what you're doing. I know, I know you take it in the stride, Charlotte. But I, I do have to be honest. It, you know, when when I when I saw your video um, about a month ago, yeah, it was the uh, first week of November, wasn't it? When I saw your, your video from the top um, of that gantry at Junction Thirty One on the M25. I wow! I, I took my hat off to you to have the bravery to do that. So I know mm. you come across as very humble and like it's nothing, but Charlotte, believe me, to to people like me, it it really is something. And and your words that you said at the time, there's a particular line that stuck with me. You said, "History shows us that we have to challenge unjust laws." What is being done to people all over the globe in the name of profit is the greatest imaginable injustice. I will not turn my back on people whose lives are being destroyed for rich men's profit. And I, and I saw you say that. I heard the words in your video, and I, I wrote it up for an article that we did on for the magazine on our website. And I was and I was wondering, Charlotte. I was wondering. How long will it take until we look back at people like yourself, like we looked at the suffragettes? If you think about the suffragettes, you know, they were seen as a, a massive nuisance and, you know, almost ridiculed at the start. And then it grew and it grew. And now, you know, the, mm. we look back at them, you know, as, as, as the heroes that they were. Let's mm. hope that's going to happen with you guys sooner rather than later. As a final shout out to our listeners, if there's anything that people want to do, 
and anything people want to do to get involved in this and learn more, can you just tell our listeners once again how they can get involved and supporting you, learning more about the issues that we're facing and getting involved in movements to help save the planet? What can our listeners do? Both uh, Just Stop Oil and Extinction Rebellion have um, comprehensive websites with lots of information about the science behind the movement as well as what people are doing. And um, Climate Action Support Pathway offers uh, a way to um, work with activists to ensure that they are as well cared for as possible throughout actions they choose to take. Perfect. And, and thank you ever so much once again, Charlotte. Firstly, for everything you're doing. And secondly, for your time on the podcast today. Um, well, guys, that was Charlotte Curran. Um Again, do check out the link in this podcast and you will find ways that you can support Charlotte and people like her. Until next week, that's been this episode of Social Work Radio. Do like us, do leave a review and do consider sharing this with others. Until next week, it's goodbye from me.